for sharing your gifts with our body. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I want to ask you, invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Book of Philippians, chapter 1. We're continuing our study of the book of Philippians. We'll be in verses 12 through 18 this morning. 12 through 18. I want to ask you one question. How much does the gospel mean to you? How much does the gospel mean to you? You see, when it means everything, when it's everything, your perspective can be reoriented so that any circumstance, absolutely any circumstance, can be specially designed for God's glory and your good. You see, Paul is in prison. How is prison to God's glory? It, it seems backwards, right? Prison to God's glory. This, this is really a question that's difficult to measure. How much does the gospel mean to you? How, do you? how do you measure that in someone's life? In fact, the question really seems more relevant when we consider an event like the shooting at Columbine several years ago. If most of you will remember that there was a story about a student who was asked with a gun pointed at uh, him or her... Uh, the gun was pointed at them, and they asked, do you believe in God? And the student, supposed, the story goes, said yes. I remember after that shooting, after that occurred, there were lots of people who were asking themselves, you would hear in conversation, I wonder what I would do if I was asked that question. You know, I wonder if I would be able to have that courage, if I really love God that much to where I would answer so boldly, even with a gun pointed at you. Corey Ten Boom is another person who was in a certain situation. We'll refer to Corey Ten Boom uh, later on in the sermon as well. But Corey was alive during World War II, lived in Holland, and her family chose to hide Jews in their own home. They knew that if they were caught, they would likely be arrested and likely killed. But they decided to do so. They hid Jews in their home, and eventually they would be caught and her sister and her father would eventually die from the circumstances they would endure after being caught. And in a concentration camp, she would sneak in her Bible to the concentration camps. She would hold Bible studies, knowing all along that in these circumstances, she could be in very much trouble for this, likely killed. And so it's easy when we look at those types of situations to measure how those people, how much they care about the gospel. But in our lives, we often are not enduring severe persecution, right? Many of us. So how do we measure in our personal lives, in our families, in the things that go on in our everyday just existence? How do we measure how much we love the gospel? How much we care about it? This is a question I want to hopefully help us answer as we go throughout this, throughout this text. But before we, we really dig in, we need to get the tone of what's going on. Last week we looked at Paul's prayer for the believers at Philippi. So what Paul has expressed to us so far in this letter of Philippians is he's expressed what his prayers are for those people who were there in Philippi. But the one thing he has not shared with them yet, which they would be very concerned with, is, Paul, how are you doing? You're the guy in prison. Paul, how are you? And can you imagine how concerned this group of believers must have been for Paul? Paul was the superior of all apostles. 
the Christianity had not spread extremely wide at this point. It was a, a very, what we'd probably call a small movement. Yet, the supreme apostle is landed in prison. This is anything but a strong movement, right? So can you imagine the Philippians? The man who came to us and shared with us the gospel. He discipled us and told us how we are to live and to obey God. And where is that man now? That man is in prison. And so can you imagine the questions they must be asking? Just as kind of a, a corollary in our day. There was when Steve Jobs resigned from Apple. I don't know if any of you heard some of the, just the questions that people had. Steve Jobs was the man who brought Apple to where they are today. And so many people would kind of show a little bit of concern. Is Apple going to do as well with Jobs gone? What's, what's going to happen? Well, there might be an even deeper concern at this point. The Philippians have given their lives for the gospel, and yet the leader is thrown in prison. And so Paul, in this section, is going to update them. And the thrust of his update is, the gospel's not losing ground, it's not going to quit, but it is well. His, his arrest, it's no reason for alarm, all is well, the gospel is spreading, and God is faithful. This is the character of this update. And so these, this is the tone of the text. I hope, you, I hope you see this. The Philippians are concerned Paul, how are you? Is the gospel going to continue? Or is this just going to die out? Is this like any other small movement? These people would have seen a variety of religious movements in their day that kind of started, had some steam, and then just phased out. Is this what Christianity is going to be, Paul? This is the tone. Is everything okay? And Paul is going to address this concern. Will you stand with me? And we'll read Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Paul says, beginning in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You get the question they're asking Paul, is it going to be okay? And he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, this prison has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. You may be seated. Father, we pray that you would give us clarity in your word this morning. That your living word, that your active word would pierce our hearts and it would produce in us a great love for your goodness and your grace. Lord, that this might be the foundation, the building block of all of our lives so that every aspect of our lives is shaped by you, by your grace. 
by the salvation you have provided for us in your son, Jesus. Please speak to us clearly this morning. Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I want to look at this text from the perspective of the believers at Philippi. Paul is addressing things that he knows they would have been concerned with. The first question that Paul will address is, will the gospel continue to produce? The Philippians are concerned, probably rightly so. So they might ask Paul, is the gospel going to continue, Paul? And Paul, answering their question, says, persecution accelerates the progress of the gospel. You see, what's interesting here is putting the man in prison ought to have stomped it out a little bit, right? You can picture someone, if a fire gets started where it's not supposed to, and they're, you know, they try to stomp it out. I don't know if you've ever seen this happen around a campfire or something, but I have. And they're trying to stomp it out, and then little patches keep coming up everywhere. This is what's happening. They're trying to stomp out the gospel, but instead it's like gasoline is being poured on it. You see, persecution, it doesn't stomp it out, but it accelerates the progress. This is what Paul is going to share with them. Don't be worried. It's not dying out. In fact, this is for the good. This has been for the good of the gospel. First, verses 12 through 13. The first way that persecution has accelerated the progress of the mission is that hard-to-reach places are being reached. Places that would normally be difficult to penetrate with the message of the gospel are being penetrated. They're being reached. Look at verses 12 through 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's spreading more because of my imprisonment, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. As I shared with you last week, if you were with us, most commentators would say that Paul is in Rome at this time. Now they're in prison. Now there are some who would say other places. It really doesn't matter for this point. But what he's saying is it has become known throughout the whole Imperial Guard. The Imperial Guard was a group of soldiers who would have to stay watch with Paul while he was in prison. They would watch over Paul. If he's in Rome, this is a praetorium that is actually employed by the emperor himself. And so what Paul is saying is that these soldiers that many people would not have the opportunity to share with, to share the gospel with, Paul is getting access to them because they've got to stand there and stay watch over him. And so Paul's like, well, hey man, we're going to be here a while. And he just decides, take advantage of the opportunity. It's like when you go and get on an airplane, you know, that person's stuck with you for a little while. What are you going to share with them? So take advantage of the opportunities. This is what Paul does. This is extremely relevant for our lives. Some of you work in places like this, places that others of us have not much opportunity to access and to penetrate. Many of you, particularly from the perspective of a minister who's in a church and and other settings, we can go to coffee shops and things like that. You're in business places where you have opportunities that many of us will not have much opportunity in. And so you have opportunity to penetrate those places with the gospel. Sometimes I wonder when I'm driving by a road work crew, I wonder who's the evangelist to those guys? How many Christians do they know? You see, every one of you is placed in your vocation for a particular reason and purpose that you might penetrate that place 
with the good news of salvation. Paul is in a place and an opportunity where he has to penetrate the gospel somewhere that not many people have the opportunity to. Corey ten Boom, who I referred to earlier, I said that uh, she would eventually be arrested because they were hiding the Jews in her home. She would go to concentration camps, first in Holland, and as we will see in some quotes I'm going to read, she would eventually be in Germany. The particular concentration camp she was in, over 90,000 women were killed in that concentration camp. But here's what Corey ten Boom says about some of her story. Looking back across the years of my life, I can see the working of a divine pattern, which is the way of God with his children. When I was in a prison camp in Holland during the war, I often prayed, Lord, never let the enemy put me in a German concentration camp. God answered no to that prayer. Yet in the German camp, with all its horror, I found many prisoners who had never heard of Jesus Christ. If God had not used my sister Betsy and me to bring to, the, to him, Bring, to bring them to him, they would have never heard of him. Many died or were killed, but many died with the name of Jesus on their lips. They were well worth all of our suffering. So, isn't it interesting how God puts people in places for his glory and in his wisdom? And look, in particular, at verse 16, where Paul himself is going to allude to God's sovereignty for why he is in prison. In verse 16, he says, the latter do it out of love, particularly speaking about a group. But he says, they know that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The word put here actually alludes to destined. He's destined to be there for the sake of the gospel. He's alluding to God's sovereignty in where he is. It's no accident. God's put him there. He's put him there for the gospel. Corey ten Boom, this is one particular illustration of a person she came in contact with. It was after her sister died She was called to the front during roll call that morning. And she was asked to stand separate from everyone else in the group. And she asked why, and a woman, a guard, replied, death sentence. Corey knew that within minutes, she was either going to be burned, hanged, or shot. So she began to pray, knowing she would soon meet the Lord and be with her sister. But during her time, she she looked to her side and she saw a woman who was standing near her. And so this is what she says. She was praying and she says, Lord, this is the last chance I will have to bring someone to you before I arrive in heaven. Use me, Lord. Give me all the love and wisdom I need. She would ask the girl's name and how long the girl had been there in the concentration camp. And then she asked her if she had ever read the Bible. The girl said no. And she said, do you believe God exists? And she said, I do. I wish I knew more about him. Do you know him? I I do, Corey said. Jesus, his son, came to this world to carry our punishment. He died on the cross, but he rose from the dead and has promised to be with us always. My sister died here, Corey said. She suffered so much. I too have suffered, but Jesus is always with us. He did a miracle in taking away all my hatred and bitterness for my enemies. Can you imagine that? They've arrested her family, responsible for the deaths of her sister and her father. But she says, he, does, he did a miracle in taking away all my hatred and bitterness for my enemies. The girl listened, and they would have the opportunity to talk for three hours before the guards completed the roll call. 
Corey would ask the girl if she would receive the message of Jesus, and the girl said, yes. When they finished the roll call, Corey's name would be called, but not for death sentence. She was released, only to later discover that it was an administrative blunder. She would not be killed. And that girl, several days later, would die. But she had accepted Christ. You see, this is what God does. He sovereignly, wisely places us in specific places for His glory, for His namesake, so that others might know Him. And so, Paul, is it going to die out? Is it, is it going to lose its, its fuel? And Paul says, absolutely not. The gospel won't lose fuel. But instead, persecution, it'll only accelerate the progress. Hard to reach places are reached. Rejoice. Also, others are encouraged. Verse 14, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see, when others see people endure hardship, it provides inspiration and assurance that God will provide for us as well. It's something, whether it's something psychological, whatever it is, but... Others being able to see Paul in prison and his endurance and inspired them. Look, he's doing it. And, and in some sense, it's really not even about that Paul's joyful in it. It's, it's that, what if he dies? We're, we're with God. They can't win. Do we get that? If they kill us, we're with our Father and our Savior. The worst they can do is kill us. And we're with God forever. Do we, do we get that? They, they can't win. And so these others are, they see what's happening with Paul. Look, it can't stop us. It can't stop the message. And so others are inspired, they're encouraged. And so, Paul, is the message going to die out? No, no, it's not going to die out. In fact, any type of persecution, anything that happens to it, it will only pour gasoline on the fire. They won't stomp it out. Tertullian, he was living during a time when many were being killed for their faith, for their Christianity. And his famous quote is, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. You read that again, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, this is when it would spread fervently. And this is what's amazing, people die and the church grows. So you might be asking, when or how does persecution occur? Like, that doesn't happen to me often. That's not where I live. People are pretty friendly towards the gospel here. I think this is mistaken. Biblically and from experience, we can say this is not true. First, biblically, 2 Timothy 3.12. This is a, a verse that's in your notes this morning. Paul says to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did you hear that verse? It's, it's all-inclusive. There's, there's nobody who's outside that. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so even in our context where we sometimes feel that, man, it's so comfortable here for Christians. Friends, the world tends towards either legalism or towards no law at all. They don't tend towards godliness. 
And so when you seek to live a godly life that is balanced by what we said last week, grace and truth, who Jesus was, He came in grace and truth. When you seek to live a life that is shaped by the Bible, completely shaped by the Bible, not just some parts of it, but by all of it, there will be persecution in your life. When you're faithful to share the word, there will be a sense of persecution in your life. Now, this doesn't mean we should have some type of a martyr syndrome, right? Man, I'm just being persecuted, you know? That's not it, where we always feel like that. We don't need to have that, that complex. But when we seek to live a faithful life shaped by the Scriptures and when we're sharing truth, this will happen. This is scriptural, but this is also in experience. In one instance, Jesus is a pretty good example. Jesus was the most perfect man that ever lived, yet he was brutally killed. What does that say about us? He was the most perfect man that ever lived, yet he was brutally killed. So if we want to be like Jesus, what should we expect at for our lives sometimes. It will, it will come. Persecution will come. What we need to learn from this, from this point that Paul is making, is that God does not always work by man's rules of efficiency. Right? How many of you have voted, hey, to spread the gospel for a church strategy, let's send a couple of our people to prison. Does that sound like a great idea for church growth? Probably not the best model. I haven't heard it in the last 10, 15 years. Particularly in America. God does not always work by man's rules of efficiency. Maybe instead of being extremely... We should be concerned about the moral uh, compass of America. But maybe instead of being concerned about it politically, we should be concerned about it spiritually. Maybe the way that God would turn our country around would not be through politics, but maybe through uh, the persecution of his own people. You see, spiritual growth, church growth, evangelism, these things can't be streamlined. That's not the way God works. And even within our own church, it could be that God would choose to give us our greatest blessings while while we're without a so-called senior pastor. Is it possible? That God would want us to get on with the mission. Not that we're not and that we're avoiding it. But are we staying in kind of a limbo as we wait for God to do something else? Maybe we just need to get on with the mission. I wonder if there are circumstances in your own personal life that seem inconvenient. They seem to really slow you down. Maybe it's those circumstances that seem to slow you down in which God would work the most and bless you the most in your life. We do need to see this this morning, that God is not always working by man's rules and by man's ways. He works in different ways, but they're always wise ways, good ways. So, again, we're not looking for some type of martyr complex, but we do need to know that as we seek to live faithfully, biblically, this could come. But when it does, we shouldn't be afraid that the gospel's going to lose something, that it's not going to go forward. In fact, it's a sign that it's probably going forward more. More. 
And how much do you care about the gospel? You see, Paul could rejoice because it was all that mattered. He could rejoice in prison because it was all that mattered. Corey Ten Boom could rejoice in prison because it was what mattered. This is what happens when we care about the gospel. Ultimately, any circumstance, no matter how difficult and just crazy it seems, backwards it seems, can be shaped for God's special work for His glory and our good. The second question the Philippians might ask Paul, Paul, how do you remain joyful when others are working against you? This is verses 15 through 18. How are you remaining joyful, Paul, when these other people working, are working against you? And Paul is going to say something like, focus on the message, not the messenger. Focus on the message itself, not the messenger. Paul says in 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy, and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Now, notice what's going on here. Pay close attention. This isn't false teaching that Paul is talking about. You know, there are places, many places in the Scriptures, in in the New Testament, where Paul is going to point out false teaching, that there are those who will come in and try to preach a false gospel. But that's not what Paul says here. He says they preach Christ. But the the problem is that they preach Christ not from goodwill, but from envy and rivalry. Let's keep going. The latter, there are others who do it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love. They know that Paul is there in prison for the defense of the gospel. But the former, these who do it out of envy and rivalry, they proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but they're trying to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. And so Paul says, what then? So what do I do about that? What, what am I going to do? And he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. The key here is that Paul is not talking about false gospel. He's talking about true gospel, wrong motive. They're doing it with the wrong reasons. They're, trying to, they're being antagonistic towards him for some reason. And so, what do we learn from Paul's response here? First, Paul teaches us that no one has a monopoly on the message. Remember, Paul is the supreme apostle, right? I mean, when it came to false doctrine, he's like like a spiritual Chuck Norris. I mean, he just like knocks them out and says, get these guys out of here, we're not putting up with it. Don't listen to them, they're not allowed in here. I mean, he is the authority, but here, he says, don't try to, we don't try to shut them up. They're preaching the right message. That's not the issue. So he doesn't play a type of trump card. But he says, rejoice that the gospel is going forward. Now, of course, if Paul had opportunity with these people, he's in prison, he's not getting much of an opportunity with them. That's why these people are probably saying, you know, doing this outside of when Paul's not around, because they knew he would handle up if he was there. But in the case that he doesn't have much opportunity to deal with them, with their motives, with their hearts, speak to them in love, and, but in truth, he says, rejoice that the message is going forward. So, Here's the issue. His comment is aimed at those who would slow down in their progress in the gospel because of some attitude of others. 
there's a quote that my dad would often use, and I love it. He said, if a hypocrite gets between you and God, who's closer to God? The hypocrite. And so the issue is, is about those, Paul is speaking to those who would, who would slow down, who would be consumed with the way or the method that somebody over there is doing it, and they would slow down in their own personal progress in the gospel. They'd be so consumed with what so-and-so is doing and the way they're doing it, not necessarily because they're speaking something false, but, but just because they don't like the way they're doing it, that they, they slow down in their own personal progress, their own sharing of the gospel. So we could simply ask ourselves for application, do we spend more time getting caught up on the methods of other churches or do we spend more time getting caught up on the progress of the gospel itself? It's easy for us, especially in a city with so many churches and a nation with so many churches, to, to develop this kind of us versus them mentality. We've got it right in our methods and they've got it wrong, even though we're speaking the same message. And that's what Paul might be, be getting at here. It's difficult. We don't know the particular circumstances, but clearly these, are speaking, these people are speaking a true message, but it, it's their motive that Paul is dealing with. And so, Paul, what then? What about it? What am I going to do? Oh, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And that I rejoice. And that I rejoice. We're going to finish up early this morning. Let me read to you another quote, and then get to some personal application for all of this. I think I, yes, that's up there. You can follow along with me. Paul could write things like this because first, his theology is in good order. He has, not, he has learned by the grace of God to see everything from the divine perspective. This is not wishfulness, but deep conviction that God had worked out his own divine intentions through the death and resurrection of Christ. And that by His Spirit, He's carrying them out in the world through the church, and therefore through both Himself, Paul, and others. It is not that Paul is too heavenly minded to be in touch with reality, or that he sees things through rosy tinted glasses. Rather, he sees everything in light of the bigger picture. And in that bigger picture, fully emblazoned on our screen at Calvary, there is nothing that does not fit, even if it means suffering and death on the way to resurrection. So when we ask this question for us, how much does the gospel mean to us? In the midst of our family lives, in the midst of our work responsibilities, and of all the just crazy lives that we live, the extracurricular activities with our, with our children that go on every day in the week, how is it that we can say the gospel is supreme? It shapes everything. You know, I'm afraid that some of us would say that that really is a rosy-tinted way to view things. That really is a little bit too heavenly-minded and not necessarily any earthly good. I'm afraid that some of us would say that. But that's the biblical picture. That's, why, that's how these people lived. And that's the way God calls each and every one of us to live. And so, how do you gauge it in your life? How much do you love the gospel? How much do you care for it? How do we measure that? Well, what takes priority on your calendar? 
Uh, this is an important question. What takes priority on your calendar? It's not wrong to have extracurricular activities, but I wonder, is the gospel driving these? So if you have extracurricular activities with your children, if you sign them up for ball practice, for dance, and all those types of things, how is that shaping your child's character for the glory of God? Are you using that in an intentional way to shape your child's character? It's not wrong. All these things are amoral. But are we serving the Lord in them? That's an important question. If the gospel is everything, then it's important to ask how everything in our lives is serving for that. For the gospel. So what takes priority on your calendar? Are you... Parents, it's your responsibility to shepherd your family in this way. If there are things, if your life is so chaotic that you can't shepherd them in Christ, then you need to slow down on some things. How is your church family taking priority? I know there are lots of things going on in your personal family and responsibilities that you have, but in the Scriptures, God calls us to care for one another. And so I wonder how you're facilitating that care within this body. What priority does your church take on your personal calendar? Your checkbook. It's not wrong to have some stuff, but could someone say that you're being sacrificial for God's kingdom? Please, let me say, this isn't legalism. This is not legalism to ask these types of questions. It's the only way of testing and discerning our true heart. Jesus himself said, you're... Your heart. This is what he pointed to. Your treasure. Where is it? This is the only way, also, how we will know what we'll say when we're tested. Like at the student at Columbine, or like Corey Ten Boom, or like Paul in prison. We said at the beginning, and, and I heard this often after Columbine, we would ask, people would ask themselves, I wonder if I'm going to be faithful. I wonder if I'm going to say yes, if I'm going to, you know, hold to it, stand my ground. Those are really just speculations. Listen, friend, the only way you know whether you'll be faithful is if you can look at your life now. Are you being faithful now? And if you can say to God, God, thank you for helping me to be faithful to you, to walk with you now, then trust that he will give you the strength then. He will give you the strength then. So we may, not, we may not be in a position like Paul. We may not be chilling in a jail cell trying to find a way to rejoice and find hope in Christ. We may not be in that. But we may be at home trying to take care of two or three kids and trying to manage a budget and help them. And we may be at ball games and we may be at, at anywhere. We may be at work. And the question is, is the gospel everything? Everything. So Christians, for many of you, this is this just a reminder. This is, these are things that we talk about practically every Sunday. But I wonder if the priorities are right in your heart. And if I, I wonder if they're playing out well in your physical life, in your everyday living. Check those areas of your life. The, the checkbook, the calendar, is the gospel playing out as everything.
And for those of you who might be visiting with us, those of you who you don't have the slightest how the gospel can just be everything into someone's life, how the grace of God in Christ Jesus can just be everything. If that just doesn't make sense to you, then you, you might not have a relationship with Christ. And that's something we'd love to discuss with you. Because there are going to be circumstances that come up in your life. And you'll need to find a way to rejoice. And the only hope you have is the only thing that can't take, ever be taken away from you. And that is Christ. Christ. That was the great thing. Paul's in a jail cell chilling out with a soldier. But they can't take Jesus from him. They can put him in chains. They can do whatever they want. But they can't take the Holy Spirit. They can't take Christ. And that's what allows him to rejoice. We're going to pray and then sing. And uh, if you would like to come forward, I'd love to visit with you. If you don't come forward then, then I'll be here after the service and would love to, to speak with you then. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a message that is worthy of giving our lives to. Lord, you have not withheld things from us, Lord, but you have freely given us your grace the greatest of your gifts in your son Jesus. Forgiving us of all of our sins, lavishing your great love and kindness on us, and giving us hope forevermore. The worst thing that can ever be done to us on this earth is we can be killed, and that only means that we'll be with you forever. And so, Father, we are never without a reason for rejoicing. Lord, help us that we might not put our hopes in this world, in the things that are always passing away. Lord, give us courage and grace to trust in you with all things. We praise you. You're a great and mighty Savior. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please stand.